Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. We have lots of uh, veterans who experience what is called a soul wound. It's not just post-traumatic stress that they're dealing with. It's a a genuine struggle uh, in the human soul that is created when a person takes the life of another person. And so uh, as we we consider the, the prevents program, that is now going to be a part of the federal effort to respond to the needs of veterans in this country. Uh, let us who are Christians recognize the need for the ministries that come alongside government programs. Um, the government goes only so far, and then the church must step in and walk with that soldier the rest of the way and that soldier's family to the place where that soul wound is healed. Um, and so I just really appreciate Heiser's testimony yesterday, um, not only his testimony in relationship to PTSD and the needs of veterans, but his testimony to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and how his soul has been healed. I want to talk this morning a little bit about community policing. You're going to hear that language more and more. Community policing is aimed at forging stronger relationships between police officers and the citizens they serve, in particular communities. A lot of renewed interest in community policing as cities across the country seek to rebuild trust and repair what we might describe as um, deep racial fissures or rifts in communities, uh, small and large. So there's a definitely a national shift back to what we might describe as community policing and away from sort of a militarized separation between the police and the communities they serve. It has been a strategy for a long time, but there are those who have criticized it as too maybe soft um, with its emphasis on de-escalation. So community policing was popular back in the 1990s. It was uh, what I I would describe as deprioritized after 9-11. And so for those of us who, um, you know, really remember the shifts that took place in the culture at 9-11, the change in policing in local communities across the country is a part of that conversation. We we have not always had a police force as militarized as the one we have now. And so when you and your community are having conversations about police reform, you know, take a look at maybe what it looked like in your community prior to 9-11 in terms of the relationships between the police and the community. And then um, and then, you know, take a look at what it looks like today and then what you want it to look like going forward. Um, I think that there's a notable participant in the conversation that many of us do not or have not been acutely aware of. And that participant in the conversation is the police union and police unions are pushing back hard in many places across the country, pushing back uh, against the idea of community policing pushing back against uh, lots of 
um, reforms that are being proposed. And one place where the police union is pushing back really hard is the city of Minneapolis. And so I wanted to bring Ben Johnson on again this morning. He and I talk every Thursday morning. We're going to focus in on unions, um, what they are, how they uh, came to be, how they are supposed to function, how many police unions are dysfunctioning in terms of genuinely serving uh, the needs of the communities where uh, where they exist. So yesterday we had a former police officer. Today we're going to talk about police unions. So there you go. We're still on theme, but seeking to bring a balanced conversation to a very, very uh, challenging time in our country. Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute up next. is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Joining me again today, Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can find him at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Um, we're going to talk about police unions. Ben, welcome back. Good to be with you, Carmen. So we have we have learned a lot uh, in just the prior few weeks about policing in this country. Um, we have begun having very robust conversations at all levels of governance. Um, I think we have learned some words and some things that many of us didn't know anything about, like qualified immunity. Um, and those conversations are ongoing. Uh, certainly one of the awarenesses that has been raised is is the role and the power of labor unions, police labor unions, in protecting what we might call bad cops. So can we talk today about um, police unions? Well, unfortunately, there's a lot to talk about. You know, when it comes to police unions, the purpose of a union is to maximize the benefits that are provided to the people who belong to that union. It's not necessarily to look out for the public good in the public sector, whether it's police or government employees, or in the private sector, the Teamsters or other unions, uh, it is always to maximize the benefits that go to the people who pay union dues. And so when it comes to police unions, uh, generally we, we have a very, sympathetic, uh, a very sympathetic view. Even Republicans and conservatives tend to have a very positive view of police unions because of the people they represent, people who are putting their lives on the line. And the vast, vast majority of police, just like the vast majority of uh, ministers and clergy and the vast majority of most professions, are good people who are laying down their lives for others. Uh, however, there are bad apples, bad cops, and just as there are members of bad members of every profession. And uh, in those cases where you have a union, now you have a union that is uh, often working on behalf of the bad cop against community oversight. So that's that's a problem. There are specific ways that they do that. Right. So I think that, you know, just to to sort of bring a focus in uh, on the conversation that we're having across the country, uh, Derek Chauvin, a Minneapolis police officer who killed George Floyd, um, he was actually the subject of at least 18 complaints of misconduct over the years. He never faced any serious discipline. Um, and we're learning that that was actually typical for Minneapolis, according to The Wall Street Journal of 2,600 misconduct complaints filed since 2012 with the city's Office of Police Conduct Review, only 12 resulted in discipline. And that's because the police union um, and and the person who heads it up, Bob Kroll, um, apparently 
is it's a it's a strong lobby. It's an incredibly strong lobby, and uh, quite often when it comes to a bad cop, their first call is not to uh, their fellow their fellow officers when someone's shot. Uh, there was a case in uh, November of 2013 in the NYPD, an officer named Peter Lang, who uh, shot a man in Brooklyn, and it took him six and a half minutes to finally contact the police union. The first six and a half minutes, he wasn't administering CPR. He called his union rep. And he told him, I think I'm going to get fired. And the union rep talked him through how to try and keep his job for six and a half minutes while someone that he had shot, uh, and as it turned out, uh, fatally, uh, had, had, was lying there bleeding. So that's the situation and the reality in many of these cases. Police unions uh, protect bad cops in various ways, uh, in addition to uh, just talking people uh, who, who are more interested in their jobs than in saving lives. In this case, the union rep didn't say, hang up, go do CPR. He kept talking to him about his personnel file as someone was lying there dying. But uh, in various cases, they will often tell police officers the sort of language to put in their police report that will save their jobs, even if it is a bona fide case of police brutality. Another thing is that uh, police unions, as most unions, are trying to get maximum benefits, but they realize that they're dealing with the public. Uh, they, they are dealing with fairly tight budgets, so they can't get more pay. They can't even get more fringe benefits. But what they can get is job security. And job security, when you mix job security plus force against civilians in the name of government, you end up getting bad cops being protected. Another thing that they have done in a lot of cases is that if there's a dispute over someone who's supposedly using police brutality, that goes to an arbitration board. Well, the union reps get a lot of control in selecting who does the arbitration. And so that means that these these complaints are going to people who are sympathetic to bad cops keeping their jobs because they're sympathetic to the unions paying them. In other cases, uh, if, if there's a, a, a genuine case that gets through all of the arbitration, often they have those records expunged uh, in time because of various things that are written to their contracts. And then finally, uh, just outside of uh, unions in general, there was a study recently that if you finally fire someone who's a bad cop, and uh, in one case there was a gentleman tried to fire a police chief, tried to fire 16 different police officers, he was only capable of getting two of them fired through the arbitration process. But um, there's another study that came out that showed the vast majority of cops who were fired, even those who were fired for cause, including one police chief who had been fired multiple times for felonies, including perjury, simply end up getting hired someplace else because on paper their resume looks fantastic and they don't do the follow-up uh, in terms of trying to find their police record. So unions play a role in all of this. Uh, and and uh, quite frankly, they do a job of protecting the people who pay their dues. However, uh, when it comes down to it, they're in an adversarial relationship with the people who are paying uh, for the salaries, which is to say the voters and the people whose uh, lives are on the stake or are on the line when police are enforcing the laws and when bad cops are using police brutality. All right. Uh we have to take a very brief break. When Ben Johnson and I come back, we're we're going to remind ourselves, uh, we're going to remind us uh, that it's not just police unions, right, that there are lots of, um, of groups of people who are unionized. And so um, we're just going to have a little bit of a conversation, sort of a 
I don't know, like a sober up. Let's have a conversation um, about the left and the right in terms of um, of the way that we see these things, because I think that it's helpful to note that Ben and I have talked about unions before. We happened to talk about teacher unions the last time around. Um, and and so we're going to continue having this conversation because this is not this is really not a left right conversation. This is a really a conversation about who people are serving and whether or not in many cases um, unions just help them serve themselves. So this conversation is going to continue in just a moment. Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson, he tweets at the rights writer. Um, Ben, uh, when we talk about unions, this is not the first time you and I have had a conversation about unions. I remember a conversation we had about a teacher's union uh, out in the Northwest. uh, And because of the advocacy of the teacher's union, kids who you could no longer um, attend physical brick and mortar schools after the COVID shutdowns tried to attend an online charter school. And that was blocked by the teachers union. And so then nobody got any education of any kind. Um, and so unions uh, have a powerful influence in the culture. Now unions came about because people needed support in, in equalizing the way they were being treated. Um, and, and advocacy was, was required. Like I, I think that, you know, historically, if I'm right about this, um, you know, unions emerged because workers were not being treated fairly. But we've arrived at a time where, um, you know, it's not it's not so easy to say anymore that uh, this is a left right issue where at one point in time it might have been viewed that way. No, I, I don't think that it is a left right issue, and especially when it comes to public sector unions. You know, uh, public sector unions are those who represent government employees. Uh, I think that that's a realm that really should unite everyone. When it comes to uh, private sector, uh, you can agree or disagree. What, what, um, uh, what should be the case here is that if you wish to join a union, you may. No one should be compelled to join a union. Uh, and there should be no question, as we said in the last segment, unions tend to represent and defend those who belong to it, regardless of the overall merit of those people. There's an adversarial relationship between the union and between the employer. So uh, the employer is uh, is looking for um, uh, certain advantages on their side. The union is looking for advantages for its members. That's a big problem when you're dealing with things like police and teachers, because uh, FDR said public sector employees shouldn't be allowed to unionize. And FDR, of course, was the one who made union uh, union organizing easier because he signed the Wagner Act back in 1936, made it uh, legal across the country, legally recognized and important. But he wrote a letter one year after that saying that you should never have a, a union that represents people who are working for the taxpayers because the fact of the matter is, and this is a quote, their employer is the whole people who speak by means of the laws enacted by their representatives. So the people say, Here's what we think should be uh, a pay, pay level for everyone who is working for us, benefits level, and so on. And then you have public unions trying to get over and above that. And they also say, here's what someone who uh, crosses this line should be fired, regardless of whether they belong to a union, what job they do. If a teacher doesn't show up or doesn't do a good job, they should be fired. But public unions have made it virtually impossible to do that, and we've seen that uh, this case has exposed the fact that many times police are in that same category where you have 
more than a dozen complaints against one officer, one for every year he's been on the force, and yet it's it's impossible to fire him until he kills a man in something that is so blatant that it touches off riots nationwide. All right, uh, Ben, let's pivot to a conversation about the recession that we're in as a country. Um, Talk with us about the rich not spending their money as one significant contributing factor in the COVID-19 recession. Well, there are really two prongs to this. Um, There was a study that was done just recently that showed that poor people actually uh, and and lower-income Americans are spending uh, just every bit as much as they did before the recession back uh, in March. So retail sales are back uh, after the the mandatory shutdown in March and April. In May, they rebounded. So they're back to where they had been uh, among most people, but not among the wealthy. And uh, in part, that's because the wealthy spend things on luxury goods, things like eating out at high-end restaurants and so on, uh, or staying in luxury hotels. And uh, people, of course, are still leery about staying in hotels where other people have slept, and, and they're not sure where the virus is, whether uh, the virus could live on surfaces and so on. So that that part of the economy is shut down. Also, you have some question about investment, simply because there's talk of Uh, a rebound, a second wave of coronavirus. And if that's the case, many people are already talking about a second wave of shutdowns, in which case everything that they invest, either in the stock market or in in employment and so on, will be totally lost again. And the the number one thing that people want to drive an economy is certainty or security. Uncertainty about what's going to happen, about whether the same rules that usually apply will apply in the future, guarantee that people will not invest. That's why people don't invest in uh, unstable non-democracies around the world where the dictator can confiscate everything in a heartbeat like Hugo Chavez did. That's why they uh, they don't invest in nations that don't have the rule of law. And if there's an uh, an indication that governors will suddenly uh, do away with uh, the current situation and bring in another wave of lockdowns, mandatory and uh, perhaps even uh, necessary for public health, then they're not going to invest. So I think they're writing it out and seeing what's going to happen uh, before this is all said and done. And you can't blame them, but uh, it has a a real impact on everyone. It shows how important stability is, how important it is that we reaffirm the fundamentals that we have in this country, that the rule of law applies everywhere. So we're we're in good, good condition when it applies everywhere, but this shows uh, the danger of other countries around the world and how they live all year long. So I'm curious, um, what are you? What do you have your eye on that we may have taken our eye off of, or we might not even uh, be aware we should be paying attention to? What are you working on this week? Well, uh, right now I'm doing a, a piece on uh, the. The uh, views of Black Lives Matter, the organization, you know, uh, the slogan is important because everyone uh, is is uh, the uh, view of the organization. Black Lives Matter has uh, almost doubled in terms of its popularity and its favorability. But the organization itself is collecting a lot of money and the organization believes in uh, essentially uh, racially based socialism. They say that uh, black people should have free education, free health care. Uh, all of it provided by the government as a form of reparation. They believe that the United States support for Israel is a form of genocide, and so we should make reparation to the victims, uh, presumably the PLO. So uh, it's it's an extreme organization, and uh, more details will be forthcoming. 
Hey, we're going to look forward. Uh, we'll look forward to that. We'll look forward to talking with you about that next week. That sounds uh, incredibly um, illuminating. I appreciate that. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks, Ben. All right. That's Ben Johnson. You can find him at the Acton Institute, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. You can also follow him on Twitter. He's at The Rights Writer. We'll be right back. We have talked about lament. We have talked about the need for lament as a part of this process in which we are engaged nationally. A growing recognition of the racial disparity and our need as kingdom people, not only to be ministers of reconciliation, but actually, you know, people of conciliation. If you recall the conversation we had here with D.A. Horton. Well, next up, Mark Vrogop will be back. He has a forthcoming book, Weep With Me, How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. Uh, Seeking here to bridge that canyon of racial misunderstanding and insensitivity and hurt. Uh, The book is scheduled to release in just a few weeks, and we thought we'd go ahead and have Mark on to talk with us about weeping with those who weep and the power of lament as a part of the process of racial reconciliation in this country. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Paul, am I doing a, um, an invitation right now? Yeah. Like yes, you are. Yes. Because okay. we're, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sorry. I was looking at my notes for our next conversation and I forgot what I was doing. I'm so Happens. sorry. So um, we are very, very close to the year end in terms of our fiscal year here at Faith Radio. Um, and we have a little bit of a gap. There's a gap between where we are and being fully funded as a ministry uh, at year end. And so this is a, a specific invitation to those of you who have been on the sidelines up to this point. You've been in the stands. You've been listening. Uh, you have been a recipient, a beneficiary of this ministry, but you have not yet given. And so if uh, if actually, if, if you, I'm talking to you right now, if you would um, pick up the phone and text the word give to 877-933-2484, or if you would go online to myfaithradio.com and hit the donate now button, a gift of any size greatly appreciated um, would only actually take uh, a, a fairly small number of individuals giving at, let's say, a day partner level. Maybe you want to sponsor a day of Faith Radio for $1,800. Maybe you're saying to yourself, oh, my goodness, I couldn't do that. Well, could you do a dollar a day? Could you do a dollar a day to support the ministry of Faith Radio? Um, we genuinely support every gift and, more importantly, every giver. So become a part of the Faith Radio giving community today. Join us. Give online at MyFaithRadio.com. Susie Larson, Bill Arnold, and I will be doing an hour of um, joyful Thanksgiving to God in the 4 p.m. hour today during Bill's show. So be sure to tune in for that as we celebrate God's faithfulness through the giving community here at Faith Radio. All right, I got Mark Vrogop up next. We're going to talk about weeping with those who weep and the power of lament in opening a door to racial reconciliation. That's up next. When was the last time you used a pager, a cassette tape? How about a dial-up modem? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. We live in a world where things become outdated fast. The latest and greatest technology one day becomes a pile of obsolete junk the next. And today's teens are conditioned to think the same rule applies to our values. That's why we see so many young adults leaving the church. 
They just don't see how biblical values hold any relevance today. Parents need to show their children that this 2,000-year-old book can still get them to where they want to be and keep them from ending up where they don't want to be. When they understand these principles are timeless, they'll realize that God's Word never goes obsolete. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Joining me again today, uh, Pastor Mark Vrogop. He has joined us on prior occasions to talk about lament, particularly the Psalms of lament. Um, Today we're going to talk about how lament opens a door for racial reconciliation. The forthcoming book is Weep With Me. Mark, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, thanks for having me on. Good to hear your voice again. Oh, it's good to hear your voice again as well. Um, There's actually like a whole constellation of conversations going on right now um, around racial reconciliation. And and you've got some really cool stuff going on in addition to, you know, to the release of the book. Could you just share with people like like I know that this coming Saturday you're going to do like an online night of lament for racial justice. Um, you've got a podcast on this topic. Can you share with people where they can find some resources that you're producing related to this? Because I, I just think it's really helpful not to just have a one-off conversation, but to be able to continually engage. Yeah, certainly. Uh, this uh, Saturday evening uh, with the Gospel Coalition, there's a group of leaders who are going to gather uh, by virtue of lament, and we're going to have a night of uh, lament for racial uh, justice. We're going to pray together. We're going to see God's face together and do what Christians throughout uh, the centuries have done when they're filled with sorrow or when they see injustice in the world. And uh, we're going to pray together, talk to the Lord, lay out our pain, ask him to help us, and then choose to trust and say, Lord, we, we're trusting that you can help us. And hopefully that that uh, prayer time will then move us to uh, know what we can learn better, how to be able to make progress in our understanding of these issues that are so complex, so um, fraught with uh, dangers and uh, landmines, and then also figure out what we can do to leverage for for change in our hearts and our churches and in the culture at large. So Gospel Coalition would be the one place for uh, that. Um, At our uh, church website, uh, yourchurch.com, we have a page uh, about uh, racial reconciliation and some things that we've been doing over the last five years uh, to try and advance this conversation locally on the ground, certainly not a model by any stretch, but we've tried and we're trying to figure out how to move forward together as a body of believers while in the midst of a culture that's just reeling from this um, ongoing conversation that's so fraught with pain. So let's define lament. Let's um, let's talk about what what is lament and how does that correspond to racial reconciliation? Yeah, lament, as I defined it in my first book, is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And it's the language that God's people have used when they're sad individually, when they're sad and filled with sorrow collectively, when they needed to repent, 
and when they faced um, areas and moments of injustice. And so it's a language that allows us to uh, talk to God when we're kind of stuck between, Lord, I know you're sovereign. I know the arc of redemption of history. I know where everything is headed, but I live in a world that's not like that. And so what do I do? And one application of lament uh, can be uh, lamenting over the, the challenges that hinder racial reconciliation, the issues related to racial injustice. Lament doesn't solve all the problems, not even close, but it is a helpful starting point or at least a common language that Christians could use so that instead of the, instead of the conversation tipping away from one another, it actually causes us to lean toward one another, providing some hope for further reconciliation and change. So lament is not um, silence. I'd like for you to address that. Um, and lament is also um, a powerful way to invite my uh, my black and brown brothers and sisters to speak into this this current pain um, in a way that I then don't become defensive about because lament is prayer. Can you talk about Sort of those, I mean, I feel like those are two realities swirling around. Evangelicals have been silent for a really long time. I think it's because we don't want to, we don't want to offend. We don't really know if we know how to talk about this. Um, but then we have failed then to lift up or provide opportunities for our minority brothers and sisters to publicly lament, which has got to be a part of this conversation. So can you help me in the midst of all that? Yeah, so lament helps um, both groups of people who are looking at pain, but looking at it from very different perspectives. Um, on, in the case of, let's just call majority Christians, those of us who are white evangelicals, the problem of silence is a really egregious issue. Um, in one respect, we're silent because we don't know what to say. We're silent because we don't want to offend. But we've also been silent because we, we don't want to step into the hot mess of this conversation. In some cases, we don't want to step into it because we don't want to address the issues of the past. And in some cases, I think we need to be honest, there's some people who just don't want to step into this because they harbor prejudicial and maybe even racially um, loaded or maybe even racist ideas uh, regarding their own superiority. Now, that I don't know what the percentage is, but I think we need to acknowledge that that's a possibility. And what silence does is it just, it, 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 it says by its silence, like, where are you at on this? And, and so what lament does is allows us to um, identify and vocalize that we, we see this pain, we know what's broken in the world, and we want Jesus to, to, to help us. In the same way that you would help a hurting friend who's suffered the loss of a loved one, few things are more painful than when you just don't say anything. And so lament helps us to be able to enter into the space of grief for our um, African-American or black brothers and sisters or minority believers, lament allows them to vocalize and to verbalize the pain that they feel. It's a historic voice that says, God, this hurts. They can agree with the psalmist in Psalm 94 who said, you know, can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? And realize that's in the Bible. And so by talking to God, it allows them to both vocalize, allows those of us who are majority culture to empathize, and hopefully that this language can at least create a, a mutual starting point to say that at least that we could do is to be able to pray together. Pastor Mark Vorgop and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We're going to talk about the process of lament. He's going to share the fivefold path 
that he shares in uh, in this new book, Weep With Me. We're also going to tr- talk about the church uh, at Antioch from the book of Acts uh, so that we can have a sense of the type of unity that the gospel brings because, you know, we want to we certainly want to cast a vision of hope here for racial reconciliation. So that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Show me your face. Fill up this space. My world needs you right now. My world... Continuing my conversation with Pastor Mark Vrogop. You can actually find him at your church. Dot com. Great resources there um, in terms of what his own congregation has been doing over a number of years related to racial reconciliation. Also an opportunity to hear a sermon series on the topic. It's just a great, great place for resources. He's got a forthcoming book, which we're talking about today. It's called Weep With Me. And it, it, it really does help us understand how lament opens a door for racial reconciliation. Um, in the meantime, between now and when the book releases, um, remind us, Mark, the title of the first book, which really is about lament as well. It's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. And it traces the concept of lament from the Psalms and the Book of Lamentations, helping people to know how to live between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty by practicing lament. So I feel like that's the personal one. And then this one is like sort of the application to the larger conversation we're having um, as a community of believers and then as a culture. Talk with us about the process of lament. You lay out um, in this book, Weep With Me, a five-fold path. What's that path? It involves uh, getting things in the right order of importance. So in the in the same way that if my wife is grieving about something, my first step uh, needs to be uh, applied wisely, and I need to do things in the right order. And so what I try to do is do the same thing and explain where lament fits in kind of an order of uh, how we could approach racial reconciliation and a pursuit for racial justice. So it, the, the five words are love, listen, lament, learn, and leverage. So it's five L's, love, listen, lament, learn, and leverage. Love meaning, hey, I'm a brother and sister in Christ because of what Jesus has done. That's that's a foundational reality. It's the identity that gets underneath all other identities. Listen, my first step, applying James 119. I'm going to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Lament, I'm going to enter your pain. I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to realize you're grieving. And I'm going to talk to God with you about this pain. And then I think if you love, listen, lament, you actually have the capacity to learn. I don't think if you get if you get lament in the wrong order, your ability to even learn, I think, is 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 uh, challenged, and you don't you're not able to to help uh, when uh, laments in the wrong order. And then leverage, which means we're going to work together to bring change. So a friend of mine, um, Isaac Adams, says. You know, we need to pray together, but we, we can't only pray together. We, we have to do more than pray, but we can't do less than pray. And so leverage is then working to change in my heart, in my church, and in my uh, society at large. Love, listen, lament, learn, and leverage. Um, number, number four is um, where... In my own experience, I see most Christian brothers and sisters turn away from the process. Let me just confess that. Let me just say that right there 
is the sticking point for a number of people listening right now. They, they would acknowledge that they love as brothers and sisters in Christ, that they have listened and are listening and continue to listen, that they're even willing to pray with and lament. But that learning process, that discipleship process, that lifelong learner process, um, that, that one, there's some stiff nakedness. Uh, go, I don't even know if nakedness is a nakedness is, but I don't know about you know, stiff nakedness is an issue um, for some of our brothers and sisters today. So I'm, I just want to highlight that. You don't have to respond to that. I'm making that as an observation uh, to those who are listening right now, just in my experience over the last few weeks of the back and forth that I've had um, with some of our listeners. Leverage is what, you know, Mark, I'm trying to do every single day, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to leverage whatever platform God has been gracious uh, to, to provide for me to broadcast widely, um, hopefully his agenda in the world today. So thank you for those um, five steps along the path. Let's talk about the church, um, the church at Antioch. What do we know about the church at Antioch and how does it give us uh, some ideas about the type of unity the gospel brings? So the church at Antioch was the uh, launching pad for the missionary movements that under the ministry of the apostle Paul. And that church uh, became the sort of the central location of this new multi-ethnic ga- gathering of followers of Jesus. And as a result, you know, Barnabas is sent there to check it out. Paul comes there. And what's interesting is that Acts chapter 11 tells us that Antioch was the first place that the followers of Jesus were called Christians. Well, the city of Antioch was segregated by design. Uh, many Roman cities were set up that way. At its founding, there was a wall built between uh, different ethnicities because you know human beings um, have tried to solve the ethnic problem by um, segregating people, uh, and Antioch was no different. So the church gets planted in this um, city, and at the time, uh, historians estimate there may have been up to 14 different boroughs or locations of within the city, and these Christians now are gathering, and um, they're Jews, Gentiles, and among a number of things that uh, was happening there, the culture looked at them and didn't know what to call them. Are, what, what are these people? Are they Jews? Are they Gentiles? It's, they're actually both. And therefore, a new name was needed, and they called them Christians. And so I think that's one of the examples of other texts within the New Testament that speak to the fact that God's design for the church was to be multi-ethnic. And therefore, um, gospel unity creates racial harmony. Racial harmony isn't something that needs to be achieved. It's something that needs to be received. It's already done. Um, And therefore, it is something that we need to model, not just um, theoretically, but practically on the ground now. We shouldn't wait for heaven for the church to be every tribe, nation, and tongue. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to just hope and pray and do everything I can to make sure your voice is heard because that is the truth. So would you simply state it again? Because that is the truth. Um, what you have just said uh, about who we are and whose we are and why we actually know in the depths of our being the answer to the question that the culture is now asking. I think it's an unprecedented opportunity for the church. It always has been to have there be such a new identity in Christ 
that it gets underneath all other identities that our culture would look at and say, these are the most divisive categories in life, but you all have a relationship with one another that transcends this. How is that possible? And I think it's an amazing platform for the gospel, but unfortunately that's not been the history of the church. And I think there's a need for us to try and figure out how do we redeem that. When the Apostle Paul says this in Colossians 3, that here there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. When he says here, he's referring to the church. And so there's this, this beautiful oneness in Christ that isn't just spiritual. It isn't just theological. It isn't just philosophical. It's actually practical. It means I love you because you're my brother and sister in Christ. And even though we're not the same ethnicity, there's this identity that gets underneath all other identities that is more transformative and then informs how I live out my ethnicity in a way that I think could be stunning to the world. That's Mark Brogop. He is a pastor. He's an author. Uh, the forthcoming book is Weep With Me, How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. Right now, you could go ahead and read Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy um, as an entry point into this conversation. You can also find Mark online at yourchurch.com. Mark, um, please come back. Thank you, Carmen. Thanks so much for being here. We'll be right back. Okay, so read some Psalms of Lament today as, a, um, as an entry point into the conversations that God will unquestionably invite us into in the hours which now lie ahead. Up next, in the next hour, Peter Kapsmer will be here and Dr. Albert Moeller. So stay tuned. we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.